Thanks for listening to The Vine's podcast. The Vine is a church in Austin, Texas, with the simple goal of following Jesus together. And we hope this message helps you in doing just that. Hi, Vine community. We're the Vances. I'm Austin. I'm Taylor. And this is Timothy. The reading for today is from Acts 17, 22 through 27. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands, as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Vine community. Great to be with you today as we are, we're getting close towards the end of our series in Acts. Uh, I hope it's been a rich time for you. I know it's been for me. One of the things that we're doing in this, in this uh, new format of how we're doing our worship services, we're going to have a time of feedback Q&A at the end of this message. So if there are any questions that come up for you, uh, either about the scripture text or the sermon, I would love for you to just type in that into the comment section, and we'll, we'll talk through it as a community uh, after our, our worship, after our, our songs are over with. Um, but today, I, I hope this message is meaningful for you. I've been thinking about the way in which I grew up. I, I grew up with uh, a, a younger of two brothers, and I used to love to get a rise out of people growing up. I mean, I don't know why I use the past tense. I still am that kid today. My, my favorite target, though, was my older brother, Scott. Now, the, the layout of our home in which we grew up, uh, the, several rooms made a circle. And so my favorite routine would be to do something to trigger him, to get him incredibly angry. And then he, he would inevitably follow me around. He'd chase me around this, this, these rooms in the circle over and over again, and any time he got close, I'd pull out a chair, open up the fridge door, making him slow down. And if I had a big enough gap, then I would make my way into the bathroom, slam the door shut, lock the door, and I'd hide out there until he calmed down. Now, this was a well-established routine until one day where I did something to anger him. He chased me. We went around, around, around. I went into the bathroom, slammed the door shut, locked the door, and then all of a sudden I heard my brother not slowing down at all, just kicking the door as hard as he could, which made the, a hole in the bottom of our bathroom door. And like in a rare moment where I actually saw my perfect old, older brother make a mistake, I remember getting out of the bathroom, loving this moment, and my parents came running in. And my dad's idea of a punishment was that my brother and I would have to replace the door ourselves. Now, I'm not sure what he was thinking around timeline or anything like that, but a week went by, we didn't do anything. A month went by, several months went by, and after a while, everyone stopped seeing the hole in the door. I'm not kidding you when I say that the hole was in the bathroom door for decades, 
for decades in our house, there would be a hole in the bottom of our bathroom door. And it would take some, some guest to have enough courage or gumption to kind of be honest enough to say, so what's the story with the hole in the door? And my parents would say, don't worry, the boys are going to fix it someday. Uh, it took until they actually moved out of the house for them to replace that door. But there's something to that that I, I find just so telling is that many of us grow used to our surroundings and it takes an outsider to notice something and point it out to us. We actually find that that is that's, that's happening here in Acts chapter 17. Paul is in, arriving to the, uh, the, the incredible city of Athens and Paul does what guests often do. He walks through the city and he takes notice of, of things that perhaps the residents of that city do not notice anymore. Now, Athens was this towering city. It was this prominent cultural hotspot. It was the home of Socrates and Plato and Aristotle. There's grand buildings throughout Athens, and there's also pagan temples uh, scattered throughout this city. And as Paul was walking around looking at the statues and noticing the art and the, and the towers that were all throughout this city, he noticed one thing in particular, something stood out to Paul that grabbed his attention that would come up later on. Now, if you've read through the book of Acts alongside of us, you will notice that Paul has a very specific routine when he arrives to a new city. He arrives there and he first goes to the synagogue, which is the gathering of the, the Jewish community. He teaches there, usually frustrates and angers people, but then he goes to the Gentiles and shares the gospel with them. That Often that takes root. What we find in Athens is that Paul does that exact same thing, but there's no record of any significance when he shares to the Jewish community. But when he goes to the marketplace and begins to tell people about the truth of Jesus and the good news of what Jesus' life and resurrection meant, a certain group of people took notice and began debating him. This is in Acts chapter 17. It was a group of Greek philosophers. In verse 18, it says this. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him, Paul. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Now in Athens, as we find in this passage, there, there's two different major schools of thought, uh, philosophy, Epicurean and Stoic. Now, if you'll let me, I just want to nerd out for a little bit because I, I did some research. I found this absolutely fascinating. So first, there's the Stoics. Stoics were people who believed that the goal of life is to be virtuous, to be moral, to be good. And uh, one of the things that most mislead us in our pursuit of virtue is our emotions, our passions. And so even today, so you'll call someone who's not emotional, you'll, you'll hear them called uh, stoic. It's because their, their, their view of life was to live with a sense of moral fortitude. And if you do that, you, you're, you've a, you're a mature human being. Interestingly, their view of God was also very uh, specific. For Stokes, they believed that God was more like an energy force that existed in everything, every person. It just kind of permeated life. And if you uh, lived good enough, if you were virtuous enough, that when you die, you'll actually join that energy, that force that is within all of life. Now, on the contrary, Epicureans had a starkly different view. For them, 
the goal of life is to find pleasure, is to find delight. You know when you're living well, when you're living right along the way that life was created, when you're finding happiness. Even today, you'll hear the word Epicurean, which means uh, describes people who enjoy the fine things in life, especially fine dining. Many of you maybe have looked at recipes online at Epicurious. Uh, there's a reason for that. Uh, for, for this community, the, this philosophy, happiness is the barometer in, in which one lives well. And they're, interestingly, their view of the gods reinforces that, that there are many gods, but they're distant. They really don't care about what happens in this world. And when we die, that's the end of the story. So might as well find life and delight while you can. So what we see in this the reason why I think this is so important is that we actually find these two schools of thought here today, prevalent today, especially in a city like Austin. You'll still find people who have that stoic philosophy of life, that life is about being good, being moral. Uh, you'll hear people talk about God as like this vague energy source that is in th and throughout every living thing, but it's not specific. There's no s distinction or identity and you'll, even when you hear people talk about what they hope when they die, they'll, they'll still hope that, I hope that God will notice that I was a good person and perhaps re reward me for that. On the other hand, Epicureans, that, that philosophy is very much alive and active today. What is the goal of life? To find happiness, to be happy, to find delight. So therefore, we, the, the purpose of our life is to enjoy that vacation, have that perfect Instagram life in that worthy moment, and then to you know overpay for small plate dinners at a brand new restaurant that you'll have to eat like eight different plates just to have a full meal, but it's awesome. you know, Because this is what life is about, is to find that sense of delight. And when you die, it's probably the end of the story, so might as well enjoy Uchi while you can. So we find both of these ideas, and what we find here in Acts chapter 17 and in the words of Paul is that, is that the message of the gospel confounds and challenges both schools of thought. You know, it, it confounds the stoic idea because life is not about just us proving that we are good and virtuous because even when we do that, there's a shadow side of self-centeredness and there's a shadow side of how it benefits the self. So it's not just that, 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 that the point of life is just to be good. But on the other hand, life is not about finding delight and pleasure because oftentimes we've seen how that has led us astray. We have seen that if we are just going to think that life is about pursuing goodness uh, in, in moralism or goodness in delight, that it leaves us empty and jaded. And instead, Jesus shows us a different way, a way that that challenges the broad gate that oftentimes leads to destruction. Instead, life is discovered by realizing that I have not enough goodness within myself, but I'm actually in need of mercy and grace. And then in Jesus, we find that God does not give it for those who've earned it, but God gives it out of the overflow of a love of people, out of grace and mercy. Jesus just gives us free gifts in and through himself. And that life is found when we pour ourselves out. So we find here in Acts chapter 17 is this message that Paul is preaching, it, I mean, it causes such 
curiosity that they call him a babbler, but they don't want to have him stop sharing. They actually want to hear more. And so they, they took Paul and they brought him to a place called the Areopagus, which is another name for a place called Mars Hill. Now there's actual picture of Mars Hill here. You can see that it partially still stands today. And what would people do there, Mars Hill would be used as a place where influential leaders, the people of Athens would come and they would, uh, they would make decisions. It's kind of like their Supreme Court for their city. And, but they also would gather there to hear debates. And so they asked Paul to share his, his perspective of what he's saying about Jesus. And, and Paul has this incredible opportunity in front of these influential leaders and philosophers to be able to share about what Jesus really is about and what will Paul say? Now, if you've read all the way of, of Acts up till now, you see that Paul has a specific way in which he talks about Jesus because when he goes to the Jewish community, he'll talk about how Jesus was the fulfillment of all the prophecy in the Old Testament. That what we find in, in the earlier part of the Bible, we, we see it come true with Jesus. And this is how Paul usually talked. He quotes scripture and, and the prophets and Psalms and try to convince the Jewish community that Jesus is the Son of God and the giver of salvation. But how much of a miss would it be for Paul to simply quote a Bible that these people either don't know or don't believe? Like, how much of a miss would that be for Paul just to rely on that other way of talking? And what we see here is a genius uh, at work in how to communicate the good news of Jesus. This is what he said in verse 22. Paul stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walk around, I look carefully at your objects of worship. I even found an altar with the inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The wisdom of Paul's words is that he began where they were. And like guests do, he took notice of their city. And that one thing that stood out to Paul was this statue, this idol that the people of Athens created. So that it was almost like a catch-all. In case we have neglected one of the gods that is significant, we're going to have this statue to an unknown god so that we kind of cover our bases. And Paul sees this statue and says, there it is. It's almost like a key that opens up a way to, to, to speak of and share about Jesus in a way that was intu intuitive to him. Paul was attentive enough to his surroundings and perhaps to that of the Holy Spirit so that while he was in Athens, he was looking for ways to speak of Jesus that would make sense to them. And perhaps Paul saw how God was already at work there. The one item that Paul sees as the opportunity to speak about Jesus was this idol. And Paul takes that idea and then he flips it upside down and says, God is not constructed by human hands. God is not like these other gods and you're thinking that God doesn't need anything from you. But instead, God is the giver of life. And though you don't know him, he's sustaining your life even today. Paul is speaking about a different God than what they're used to. And the only quotation he gives in his speech was of their own poets. You see, Paul's trying to speak to them the way that 
that to show them that God was already at work in your own soul, in your own heart, your own longings. Let me tell you about, this is what he quotes some of their poets that say, for in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. You see, Paul is using their language and their concepts to display that there is a God who is here in such a way that makes sense to them. The one who created everything and continues to, uh, to sustain your life you are a child of God. You are his offspring. You bear God's image. This is what Paul's doing. You know, this approach reminds me of a missionary friend uh, who used to serve uh, a community in, in Southeast Asia, an island there. Uh, they didn't have much access um, to bread and juice, so when they were going to do communion, they thought, well, what can we use that's here among us to, to, to speak of what communion means. And so they looked around, they saw they had a lot of coconuts. <laughs> and so this is what the missionary would do. He would hold up the coconut in front of the people and, and show the different scars and the scratches on this coconut and talk about how, how many of us come to this moment wounded with our own scars. And the sense of hardness, they would talk about the hardness of the heart. And then as they would crack open the coconut, they would talk about how Jesus suffered and died to be among us as one of us, to suffer and die, to display his love and compassion, to be with us in the midst of our own suffering, to step in the gap for us. And then he would open up the coconut and show from the darkness outside to show the, the white coconut meat on the inside. And they would talk about how Jesus purifies us, makes us whole, makes us pure. And then they would give the coconut and as they would eat of the meat and drink of the coconut milk, they would talk about, this is the body of Christ broken for you. This is the blood of Christ that's been shed for you. And this is just a beautiful reminder for us that just looking at what's around us, how can we speak of and point to God who's in our midst, using that which is around us to bring about a greater meaning. So likewise, Paul is in Athens, and he's speaking to these Athenians, believing that God is already at work in their midst. Paul just needs to point it out. He needs to declare that there's a deeper truth to these things. And he notices windows in their culture by which people could experience the truth of the one true God. So for us to, to bear witness here, you know, 2020, we must not only be good students of our scripture, we also need to be students of our culture, of our city, of our community. We need to begin to look for signposts of where Jesus' kingdom is already here. Like how, how do we see the longings from our community point to who Jesus is? How do we see the human condition point to the promises of the good news of Christ? We do this not to discredit what we find in our culture, but to give it a deeper meaning. And there's a reason why Paul's doing this, because this is his message. In verse 27, he said this, God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any of us. I'm going to read that again, because this is like the crux of, of his message is that what we find that these different signposts, these different windows that we find in our culture that, that are pointing at Jesus, this is what we believe in verse 27. God did this so that they would seek 
him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. And the truth of the gospel is this, though God is not far from any one of us. Paul is making this all-important point that God is near you. Though you may not know him, though you may have constructed some sort of idol to worship, though you, though you might discredit the foolishness of the gospel, you need to know that God is still near you. God is close to you. This is a cornerstone of my faith, and this is partly why we planted and started this church, is because we believe that God is near people, though they might feel like they're far from him. And unlike their philosophical point of view back there, God is not some weird, vague force in this world. God wants to be known. God wants to be in relationship. Uh, That God is not removed from this world like the Epicureans believe, that God is actually here and wants you to know him, to walk with him, to depend upon him. We don't have to persuade God with our goodness. We don't have to find uh, some sort of an existence in our, in our pleasure in spite of God's inattentiveness. God is here and is attentive to you. And more importantly, God wants to be known. God wants to be found, though he is not far from any of us. I believe one of the greatest signposts for us to point to God is in the longings that are in the human experience. We find that that humanity is afflicted with a sense of restlessness, a sense of of hunger for more, for more uh, experience of of God. And this is what St. Augustine uh, once said, famously said, Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our hearts is restless until it finds its rest in thee. Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. What are the longings of our hearts today? What are the, what are the longings within the human condition? Well, I, I think that there's some things that are common to all of humanity and that actually point us to God. There's a longing for significance that our lives would actually mean something. There's a longing for connection. You can find this in the heartache of isolation and the prolification of social media. There's a longing for hope that there's going to be something to sustain us through suffering and through loss. There's a longing for a sense of home. As German philosopher Martin Heidegger said, he details that all of life has a tinge of homesickness, an eerie feeling that we don't fully belong here, that this is not our home. And Paul And Augustine would look at these longings and say, this is more than just a mere longing. This is a calling for you to reach out to God, though God is not far from you. Friends, God is near. God God is near you today. And those longings are just reminders that we are restless people until we find our rest in Christ. So today, are, are you personally taking the longings and the restlessness to Christ. Our job is not to turn off our emotions and our longings like the Stoics might, and our job is not to recklessly follow them wherever they might lead us like the Epicureans. Instead, our job is to notice our longings and take them to the enduring, ever-faithful, overwhelming loyalty and goodness of Christ who promises to provide our 
every need. So today, we're just going to have a little space where we are going to just in prayer, just acknowledge where our longings are. What are the longings of your heart today? Let's go to God in prayer. Open yourself up to God who has claimed us as his beloved children. Reach out to God in prayer. What are the longings that are afflicting your heart and your mind and your soul today? Maybe it's the longing for peace in the midst of such strife. Maybe it's the the longing for hope in, in the midst of despair. Maybe you should have a longing for some sort of firm ground in, in such a time of anxiety. Or maybe even today you just, you just need to acknowledge and confess that your longings have led you astray. Thank you, God, for being near. Thank you, God, that we have not earned this nearness. We have not earned this attentiveness, this grace, and this mercy. But, God, you've given it freely. You've given it freely so that we would be overwhelmed by gratitude. God, I pray that you would uh, move us by this abundant provision that we find in Christ. That once we have witnessed the love of God here in our midst, we can be compelled to go to our community and bear witness to this love and mercy and truth that is in Jesus, that is already calling all into himself. May it be so. Give us eyes to see how we could point to you in our midst. And as we do so, we pray that you'd give us the compassion and love to do it well. We thank you for your mercy. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.